Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Dark Vale. We're your hosts, Tori and John. Dark Vale is a podcast that discusses the darker side of life. We aren't professionals on any of the topics we discuss. We do as much research as we can, and we do try to be as accurate as possible. However, no one's perfect, and neither are we. Because we're discussing the darker side of things, this podcast is best listened to by a mature audience. Each episode may contain mild swearing and our own personal opinions, as well as my mild list. So sit back and get ready to podcast and chill. Welcome to Dark Vale and welcome to episode two. With episode two, John and I have decided to talk about a documentary we saw on Netflix. And it's been really popular with the quarantine. It's called Tiger King. Just kidding. We are not jumping on that bandwagon at all. Um, we actually decided to go with the documentary called Abducted in Plain Sight. And it's by Top Knot Films. It's directed, produced, and the screenplay was written by Sky Borgman. So, <clears throat> this documentary was released in 2017. And it's got some twists and turns, I'll tell you guys. This is actually the second time we're recording it. I want to point that out because we put a really big effort <laughs> into the first time. But this is a very emotion evoking story and I actually hope everyone who hears this who hasn't seen the documentary documentary sorry uh to go watch it because it I uh, <laughs> yeah. it's one of those like yeah, it is. um it's pretty crazy so this one doesn't involve a murder or any blood or gore maybe a tiny bit of blood but this is yeah. mainly a kidnapping with maybe like a like an alien twist i don't <laughs> yeah. know if that's foreshadowing that, that's supposed to be funny but uh we decided to redo it because we spent a lot of time ranting and talking about our own opinions in the first one it ended up being two hours we almost split it into two parts but at the end of the day, we really don't want an episode that we could very accurately name episode two, Tori's Rage. So <laughs> I just wanted to point that out. And I don't know if you had anything to say fast. Uh, well, it's uh, it, it definitely is an emotion invoker for uh, a story and for a podcast, but not in the sad, teary-eyed emotion. It's just very frustrating. It's very angering in certain spots. Uh, there's so much of it that j just gives you more questions than answers. And those questions are very frustrating because just as you listen, you'll understand that, that so much of this doesn't make sense. And you'll have your own questions. And that's also why we highly recommend watch the documentary. Yeah. <clears throat> so... We're going to just read through what we've written about what happens and stuff. And then we're going to discuss our opinions at the end because we don't want to get stuck in a two hour <laughs> loop of madness. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <clears throat> I guess I'll start now. So the documentary begins with the audio of who we're going to refer in this podcast as we're going to call him B. 
And you can just relate that B equals bad guy, because bad guy is who that is. So this bad guy had a thing where he liked to record himself on video cassette tapes, uh, saying weird things and just being strange, because he was. And I don't know if it was the FBI or the police or somebody had this... They, they had some recordings that he'd made anyways, and... The beginning of the documentary that we watched had this this clip, and it had him saying it in his own voice, but I'm going to read it right now. So, She was a beautiful little girl, very bright and very lively. She smiled brightly at me, and as she smiled, there were definite dimples in both cheeks. My heart went out to her. I walked up to her, put my arm around her, and drew her close to me and held her tight. She looked up at me, her eyes beaming, and I knew that I had found the little girl that I was searching for. Creepy and weird, right? Yeah. Uh, he's talking about a 12-year-old girl, and he's 40, but we'll get into that. So, this documentary starts in Pocatello, Idaho, and I hope I said that right. So, it starts with this family named the Brobergs, and the Brobergs, they are a very traditional family the mother's name is Marianne. Uh, they have three, ki three kids, three daughters. They're, the daughter's names are Susan, Jan, and Karen. Um, Marianne's a stay-at-home mother. You know, they have a very close family. The dad is a simple business owner. He owns a, a flower shop. His name is Bob. And this really nice family, they met B in June of 1972 in church. So B and his family, they had five kids and they were a really, really friendly family. Uh, he had a wife named Gail. She was also a stay at home type of mother. And this family had a lot in common and spent tons of time together. The, the Brobergs and B, uh, all became friends. Uh, like Tori said, they met in church. Um, B was a very friendly person who was often, uh, seen sending the Brobergs gifts. Uh, one time in particular, he even sent them a fruit basket with a nice note. It seemed just like a friendly fella. Uh, the two families spent a lot of time hanging out together. Uh, Birchfold would even pick up the kids in the morning and the kids would get all happy and excited and say, it's, it's going to be a great day. Uh, the Broberg said that B came around practically every day. And that he was fun and very good with the kids. Doing things like swinging the kids around, helping them put puzzles together. It seemed pretty clear, though, he was with the whole family. So while he was with the whole family, he seemed to put most of his focus on one daughter, and her name was Jan. Uh, Birchtold even uh, came up with a nickname for Jan. It was Dolly. So, I'm about to read another one of those clips that B had said into a recorder. A splattering of clouds were set on fire by the rays of the setting sun. I looked at my Dolly. Her face was aglow. She looked out and took my hand and then said, I love you. 
I returned. I love you too, beautiful. I turned to her, put my arms around her, and pulled her close to me and said, Dolly, you've brought a special light into my life. I love you more than words can tell. She looked at me. I bent over and we kissed. No man could love any woman more. And I just want to point out to you that I think that's the last weird quote that we say. So it's not going to be <laughs> me, so, yeah. me reading all these weird cheesy things. But I just wanted to give a good idea of like, he was a weird, weird man. So the special attention that he gave Jan to annoy, or sorry, <laughs> the special attention that he gave to Jan annoyed her parents. His fascination with Jan was a little disturbing, his mom said. Jan said that B was like a second father to her. She loved him. She trusted him. And she felt safe. Um, she even felt like she was one of his children. And I just want to point out that at this point, the family doesn't know that he has this fascination. They just think it's weird that he seems to focus on Jan. But they don't know he's saying weird things into a tape recorder or has any sort of feelings. Yeah. So in fall of 1972, uh, B, he started changing the kind of the dynamic with the family. Uh, he started hitting on Jan's mom, Marianne. Uh, he, he also took Bob, Jan's dad, for a ride in his car, and they ended up having a sexual encounter. He started spending more time with the parents separately. It was stated in the documentary that B had separated Jan from her family as fast as he could. So he's, he's kind of taken the three main important parts of the family, the mom, the dad, and Jan, and... Yeah, he's making them distant. He's... Yeah, and he's going at them, like, separately, right? Yeah, like, in secret. He's doing shameful things with the mom and the dad, which kind of keeps them um apart a little bit because if you've done something shameful you're ashamed and it makes you quieter and more reserved around your family and your family members so he did the classic divide and conquer i think yeah yeah exactly um so yeah so he's originally jan had shared her bedroom with her sister and uh b had talked the parents into turning that one big bedroom into two smaller ones. And it was also B who built the wall to separate the two bedrooms. So now he's got Jan isolated to her own bedroom. Yeah. So the Brobergs and B's family, they've known each other about a year now. It's uh, June of 1973. And Jan went on vacation with B's family to Seattle. Uh, he came back, so B uh, came back and told Jan's family of some weird stories that uh, had happened while they were on vacation. He said at dinner, Jan all of a sudden started to rock back and forth, say strange things, uh, so he took her back to the hotel room. Jan said she remembered being carried into the room uh, but was groggy and in and out of consciousness. She also said, though, that she woke up and she saw B naked, which is very weird and creepy. Oh, yeah, really strange. 
And she definitely wasn't going home telling her parents any of this stuff. Yeah. In the, in the documentary, she made it clear that she never said anything. So the parents didn't at least know that part. But Yeah. Um, so in January 1974, B was reprimanded by the High Council of the Church of Latter-day Saints because of the involvement with another young girl. Uh, so not Jan. So he's... He's doing some not okay shit with a different girl. Yeah. Uh, the church council B, council B, and he also went to a clinical psychologist in California to help him overcome his obsession with Jan. B told Jan's family that he was being treated for the abuse he suffered as a child. He told Jan's family he had had a sexual encounter with an aunt when he was four years old. B also... Uh, sorry. Uh, B also told them that part of his therapy was to spend some time alone with the Broberg's daughters. The family let him do it. He told them they could call the doctor and ask, ask him, make sure that this is actual truth and that's what the doctor had said. And Jan's family didn't even try to look into it. They just believed him. So what B actually meant by spending alone time with the daughters was that he actually just wanted to spend alone time with one of those daughters, Jan. And he wanted to do it at night in her bed. So... He convinced this family that it was part of his therapy to lay beside Jan at night in a bed listening to a tape recording. Yeah. All right, so the family wasn't comfortable with that, but they were told it was part of his therapy and they believed him, which we'll talk about at the end of the podcast. I will reserve that for later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so the psychologist ended up not being licensed at all that he was talking to. Um, the church had set up this, all this counseling in general because they were very close to the church. So the church tried to help take care of it in a quieter way. So B wouldn't have necessarily had his business of being involved with a different little girl, even be news that anyone knew. So that's why we believe he told the Brobergs that he was being treated for something that had happened to him earlier in childhood, yeah. the sexual encounter from an aunt. So he didn't even tell anybody why he had to go to counseling. He took no responsibility and... For all the Brobergs knew, he they didn't even know that he'd done anything with the little girl. So, um, apparently this psychologist had given him these tapes that he was supposed to listen to when he was laying in bed next to Jan. And they were really, really odd tapes. Um, I'm just going to make up an example of what it sounded like on the documentary. And it was weird, like... The waves are crashing in, and the girl is caressing you. Uh, what? He was playing that while laying next to her in bed? Yeah. 
Um, he was molesting her. Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, he he was giving her what he was claiming were vitamins, allergy pills. Uh, they were, in all actuality, uh, sleeping pills. So this would explain why when they were on vacation, she was groggy. Yeah. She was in and out of consciousness. Um, the dad literally said he had never had an inkling this man had any sexual desires for his daughter. The dad, so Jan's, Jan's dad, Bob, uh, said he didn't even know what a child molester was. It just wasn't a common knowledge back in the 70s. Um, they, they let him sleep in Jan's bedroom approximately four times a week for six months. This equated to 96 nights that B slept beside Jan. For therapy. Yeah. Right up until the day she was taken. Yeah. So, the next thing that happened in the documentary, so... We tried to order things a little bit more chronologically than how it appeared in the documentary. I, yeah. I feel like the documentary picked out very sensational things and threw them out at times where it just seemed more shocking. Yeah. But <clears throat> chronologically, the next thing that happened was October 17th, 1974. And so this is a little bit of time has passed yet again. Um, so... B called Marianne, and I have to reiterate the fact that this was a close family. The family didn't know that B had been previously treated for um, doing whatever he did with that little girl. Um, they thought they were helping him with therapy. I know it sounds crazy, but they thought they were helping him by letting him lay with their daughter at night and this and that. So... B called up Marianne, which is Jan's mom, and said that he wanted to take Jan horseback riding. But Jan had a piano lesson after school, so they made a deal that he would pick her up from the piano lesson and then he'd get to take her horseback riding. Um, Jan reported that after B picked her up uh, from her piano lesson, he gave her a pill and told her it was aller allergy medication, which was pretty normal. Like, he always did that. So, uh, Jan then said that she passed out and had absolutely no recollection of the stables or the drive. She couldn't even rem remember B on that drive. Uh, so, time has passed here and there, and Jan was supposed to be home by supper. That was the deal that B and Marianne, Jan's mother, had, had made. Um, he didn't bring her back when he was supposed to. Uh, by 9 p.m., B's wife named Gail, she came over to the Brobergs. She was worried, too, because her husband wasn't home either. So, it had been a Thursday that B had taken Jan to go horseback riding. And I believe it was a Monday when this family finally decided to, um, contact authorities. So, Five days had passed, five full days yeah. before um, either family contacted anyone. So they ultimately, like I said, didn't speak to anyone 
until five days had passed. When they did, they eventually spoke to Pete Walsh of the FBI. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. <clears throat> I can't believe this will be left mostly to after the story is told too, but five days before they contact authorities. Uh, the FBI came right over to the Brobergs and in interviewed them for several hours. Uh, the Bro Brobergs didn't suspect foul play. Uh, they said, uh, I didn't think he's uh, kidnapped her. He's just gone someplace with her. Uh, the FBI agent, Pete Walsh, made it clear in the documentary that he had to drill it into the minds of Jan's parents that uh, she had for sure been kidnapped. The FBI interviewed B's wife, Gail, and she told them that they had a motorhome in storage, and when the FBI checked on it, they found it to be gone. A call came in to local police stating that there was an abandoned Ford found at a nearby park, and it had the keys inside. This was B's truck. The window on the driver's side was broken out. They found a small bit of blood on the inside of the driver's door, which was B's. The window was found to have been broken from the inside out. Pete Walsh said on the documentary that B had left blood to use as evidence that him and Jan had been kidnapped. The FBI and police also found tire tracks similar to a motorhome and a single set of footprints around the truck. There was an APB sent out for B, so an APB is an all points bulletin, um, was sent out for B, and it was active for weeks. Yeah, so that's really crazy. I just want to say fast that, so they found out that B had a motorhome that was missing. Yep. Um, they found his abandoned truck. They found what looked like possibly some sort of struggle happened at the truck. But um, from looking at the evidence, they actually saw that a window had pun been punched from the inside out. Yeah. So uh, B's blood would have been from him, from him punching, or the blood on the truck would have been from him punching the window because the glass was outside the truck. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the glass... I mean, if you're, if somebody is coming to kidnap you and break the window, they're smashing it on from the outside in yeah. because they're outside the vehicle. Um, also, uh, one more thing to point out is that uh, the FBI and the police uh, specifically say that they found a single set of footprints. If there is a kidnapper and they're taking B and Jan, there's going to be multiple sets of footprints. It's very obvious that... Uh, B just walked around his truck, picked up Jan, and then they got in the motor home and left. I mean, there's one set of prints. Yeah, exactly. And I think it also said that they even found what would have matched the motor home for tire prints there, too. Like, yeah. Yeah, so I feel like he didn't plan that stage of the kidnapping very well because yeah, all the evidence is absolutely pointing at B. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the FBI, the FBI after that, after the APB was sent out and they're actively searching, the FBI also took it a, like, they also decided to go out into the community and see what people of the community uh, could tell them about B. And 
there was a general consensus in the community that B had an infatuation for young girls. Like, that was fairly well known in the community. That's crazy. Yeah. So, I'm not sure how that info just wasn't ever known to the Broberg family who thought the sun shined out of his ass, but yeah, yeah. apparently many other people knew different. Um, so there was an interview in this documentary with Joe, who is B's brother. And he's just, I liked his, I liked him in the documentary. He was just matter of fact. And he goes, my brother was always a sexual pervert. He always did like little girls. I guess he had a need to fulfill as a pedophile because he was a pedophile. And I knew that one time mom and dad went somewhere. My brother started messing with my sister. She would have been six and he would have been 12 or 13. So even his brother, who probably loves him on some level, is matter-of-factly stating, yeah, he was a pedophile. So yeah. people that knew him seemed to have that idea. Um, so Pete Walsh from the FBI also said that He'd been in the FBI for six years at that point. This was his first pedophile case. So that just shows how rare, um, how even having a case like that or yeah. investigating something like that would have been. Like, yeah. Pedophiles and molesting, just it seems like it really wasn't something that, not necessarily wasn't happening, but wasn't... Yeah being reported it just wasn't being talked about it wasn't heard about i feel like it was like a lot more of a dark family secret um children weren't taught to speak out yeah some kids probably didn't even know it was wrong lots of adults that didn't even know about it, it they didn't develop the sense in their mind that an adult could be doing it to someone like there it was pretty naive times i think but yeah so six years in, into the FBI and this was his first case like that. So he is even quoted of saying, I, I couldn't comprehend it at first. He said that the FBI taught stranger danger, but they, he'd never heard of pedophiles. Yeah. And that speaks volumes right there. Yeah. So now we're hearing, we're going to hear Jan's perspective on her being taken. Um, she, so she says she woke up in the dark. She said she had a sensation of moving. She knew she was laying on a bed and her wrists and ankles were strapped. She couldn't move. She heard a voice in her ear and there was this white intercom looking box thing. And it said, it's time for your mission to begin. She thought she had been kidnapped by aliens at that point uh, the voice was distorted and, and meant to sound like like an alien. Uh, she was in and out of sleep. Uh, she woke up with her restraints off and the white box playing again. It was saying, we are called Zeta and Zethra. The alien, she said, was... Uh, sorry, uh, the alien said she was part alien and her mom was real. But her dad wasn't. Her dad was an alien. Her her mom was her real mom. But her dad wasn't. Yeah, sorry. That's... Yes. Sorry. Um, 
the the alien so Zeta and Zethra um, on this white box it said there that uh, Jan has this important mission she is to have a child and this child will save the alien planet and she needed to have it by the time she's 16 the box also said that if Jan can't do it the backup plan is her sister Susan who was also half alien and half human. Yeah, so this weird box that magically appeared um, with aliens speaking through it also instructed her to go to the front of the motorhome because at this point she's up, she's kind of got her wits about her and she's noticed she's in a motorhome and it said that she needs to go and meet her male companion. So she doesn't know who's in here with her at all. Like, she thinks she's alone at this point until it tells her that. So she goes out there and does what it says, and guess who? Guess who's there? Her male companion is B. So she said she felt loved and trusted. Oh, sorry. <laughs> she said she loved and trusted him, so she felt very relieved to see he was there. Like, remember, she is only 12, so... yeah. She believes that she's been abducted. She can't remember anything. She, she sees someone familiar, so she is relieved. She said he was covered in blood and he was cut. She said he wasn't moving and his eyes were closed. He looked dead. So she woke him up and then he told her his part of the story about what happened. So he told her that they had been driving to go horseback riding when he saw white light and the car was vibrating and they must have been taken by that white light for all he could tell. Remember again guys, Jam was 12 and B was 40 and he now had her captured in his motorhome. Yeah, and he's got her completely wrapped around his finger. Uh, Jan, sell, uh, Jan said while uh, she was gone. She had no concept of time because she was drugged a lot of the time. B went through the cupboards of the motorhome and he found some bucks in one of those cupboards. And they just so happened to be bucks about sex. So he, <clears throat> excuse me, he grabbed those bucks and he showed them to Jan. Um, then the white box told her big coincidence coming up guys i don't know if you can handle it <laughs> yeah uh the white box told her it's uh it's sorry the white box told her it's time time to ask the male companion to do what makes people happy so yeah you know what that means yeah so it's just a weird coincidence how b in the motorhome that he owns planted books about sex yeah. to teach a child about sex and then ooh the next thing they hear the aliens say is time to do sex like yeah oh it's just when you think about the level of planning it took to just even have the, that stupid series of little events happen to trick a kid into sleeping with you basically yeah it's just ugh. sickening yeah but we're we're gonna get stuck on that so let's <laughs> yeah. move on um so, in November of 1974, the, Jan has been missing for 35 days now. So, B called his brother 
and he wanted his brother to get a hold of Marianne, who was Jan's mom, because B wanted written permission from Jan's mother that he would be allowed to legally get married to Jan in the USA. Because guess what, guys? He already married Jan in Mexico. So in 35 days after kidnapping Jan, what he'd actually done was go to Mexico and marry a 12-year-old girl, which was 100% legal at the time. Um, it's just diabolical, Yeah, I believe. Oh, yeah. Um, so he decided that he wanted to come back to the USA, but he didn't want to bring her back unless he was able to marry her. Because apparently in the 70s, it was also legal to marry a 12-year-old in the USA if you had your parents' permission. Yeah. So... Jesus. Her parents said no, which I was very thankful for when I heard that. Um, so the brother decided that everybody needed Jan home. So the brother of B decided that he would contact the FBI and he'd let them tap his phone. So the FBI eventually traced that phone to Mazatlan or I think that's right. In yeah, Mexico. I think you said it right. The Mexican police came out. They put them both in jail. They found them. And B got put in a jail cell. Jan got put in an interrogation room. B ended up um, bribing a guard so that he could talk to Jan. And so when Jan got there, B gave her some pretty specific directions on what they were, what she was supposed to say. So she was basically supposed to say that... Um, B had brought her on a vacation. He made a mistake. He took Jan too far away and he should have told her family he did that, but he didn't. Oops. Yeah. Like, oops. oops. <clears throat> um, Excuse me. What a, what a ridiculous hollow, uh, alibi. Like, yeah. how dare he think people are that ridiculous to believe that? Anyways, I won't, I'm going to keep going with this. Um, so he vis he also said that uh, to Jan that Zeta and Zethra had actually visited him in the jail cell. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. So they wanted Jan to know that she wasn't allowed to say four things. Number one, Jan can't tell anybody about Zeta or Zethra. Number two, she can't talk about the pills. Number three, she can't talk about the mission. Number four, she can't talk about the sex. Pretty convenient, the four things she's not allowed to talk about. Is everything that implies him for um, the worst things you can do to children? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. B also told her uh, she can't have contact with any other men, not even her dad. If she does, her sister Karen will go blind, they'll remove her dad, Jan will be vaporized, and they'll take her other sister Susan to use for their backup plan. When Jan's parents flew to Mexico to get Jan, they said Jan was very concerned about what was going to happen to B. So this also shows how just she's just wrapped around his finger. Um, she's so concerned for him, and that's not her fault. That's, no, it's that just, just yeah the manipulation that he's putting her through. Um, the Brobergs sent the marriage certificate back to Mexico with instructions to annul the marriage. Uh, B ended up being brought back to the U.S., and he was indicted for kidnapping charges. 
Uh, a doctor checked Jan out and said there was no signs of sexual trauma. Um, but Jan would not talk about anything other than she was gone on a vacation. Yeah, so the parents said that they didn't have any real concerns about Jan after she returned. The doctor gave her, gave her the clear and they just didn't have any real concerns after that. Jan said that she was constantly thinking about B. She wanted to continue the mission. She was very disconnected, but as far as the parents were uh, concerned, Jan was healthy, she was back, and they could pretty much just move on, I guess, which... I think it, that says something about the times they were living in, because a lot of chatting with children I don't think was the norm, but um, Welsh, who is the FBI agent, said that he had to tell Bob and Marianne, Jan's parents, um, that they couldn't talk to B anymore, and his wife, yeah. because B had kidnapped their kid. Yeah, the fact that they had to be told that. Yeah, so these parents, they still hadn't quite caught on yet that this was a bad man who took their kid. Yeah. So Christmas Eve, uh, Gail Birchtold, so B's uh, wife, came over to the Brobergs and asked to talk to Bob alone. She asked them to drop the charges against B. And if Marianne and Bob didn't sign off on the affidavits... They were going to expose the sexual encounters both Bob and Marianne had with B. So, so I, yeah. Oh. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, we worded that kind of wrong. Um, she came over to talk to him, but she brought affidavits with her yeah. that, that were already drawn up yeah. that, she, that she wanted him to sign off on. So I apologize for the way I wrote that, honey. No, no worries. Um, so... The 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 Birchtolds now, uh, B and his wife, they have some blackmail. Um, Marianne and Bob decided to sign these affidavits. On on the affidavit, so one of the the actual uh, lines coming out of this affidavit, um, well, actually, there's two of them. Uh, the first one is, my daughter was not taken by force or against her will, nor was she held or confined against her will at any time while in the company of the defendant. Ugh. Right? Could you imagine signing that? I couldn't. I absolutely couldn't. Yeah, so they basically got blackmailed because uh, B decided to use the fact that Marianne slept with him and that Jan's dad even had a sexual encounter with him against them. So they would rather sign an affidavit saying that their daughter went on her own free will then char keep charging him with kidnapping, but let him leak out the facts to the public that they all had sex together, basically. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, exactly. That's not protecting your kid. No, that's... And this this was one of the points in our previous recording that uh, brought out a lot of frustration and a lot of uh, discussion over this. Uh, we really went on a rant about this because it's just... It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's uh, safe. Sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's safe to say I don't agree, and I won't be saying anything else about that one. John can John can say his comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can agree with you. I don't agree with that. Um, 
signing that. Uh, another ex- excerpt that uh, came out of this affidavit uh, was, I honestly believe there is a strong possibility that the defendant was under the impression he had my husband's and my consent to take my daughter with them when he left in October. And so after after we read both of these, this is where we went into a fairly lengthy and frustrated rant about these these parents. I get the time. I get that the parents are uh, part of the victims in this story, but they're also like the most naive parents ever. Yeah. And uh, B must have one hell of a way with words to get the parents and uh Jan and wrap- Jan wrapped around his finger like that. Yeah. And I mean especially the parents. Oh yeah. I mean a twelve year old it's innocence and naive itty that comes with being so young anyway. So but these parents, I mean anyway. I just wanna say this is me taking the time to climb a mountain and then yell yikes from the rooftop. That's all or from the mountaintop. <laughs> That's all I'm doing right now. Don't even worry about me. <laughs> um, so this got back to the U.S. federal attorney uh, about how the, the Broberg signed these affidavits, and he was absolutely livid. Um, he said, you can't do this. And he told him that there will still be a trial. Yeah, even after signing the affidavits, they... They put a stop to it and said, you can't not have it. Yeah. We have to do this. So it was insisted that there would still be a trial. However, the unfortunate thing is that the affidavit still came into play in court. And that eventually ruined the strongest part of the case they had. And then the trial got postponed till a later time. So... We'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, B, after all this happened, he decided to move to Utah and work at his brother's car dealership for a bit. So his wife stayed behind. Uh, B came home on the weekends and he actually even kept going to church. And um, he absolutely kept contact with the Brobergs, if you can believe it. Uh the family claims at this point they still weren't aware of how sick B was. And with that, I'll yell yikes one more time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry, guys. I get choked over some of these parts a little bit. Uh, B then started coming into Jan's room on t- at times when he was back home. Um, he brought the alien box, of course, because their mission was very important. He would come in, talk about the mission... Uh, Jan continued to be in very consistent communication with B. She'd occasionally get a secret note that was passed along from someone at school uh, that happened to be from B. He somehow got it there. It would tell her to meet him or to meet at a location, uh, such as a payphone where she'd receive a phone call at a certain time or something like that. She'd also get really creepy love letters and things like that as well. Jan claims that she was absolutely still brainwashed. She loved him and she was committed. Um, 
another thing that's very interesting to add, so at this time, Mary Ann, Jan's mom, was still hearing from B just about every day at this point. B was telling her he loved her and he needed her in his life. So he was working the mom. So this is like kind of a classic story you hear about a pedophile will um, start dating a single mother and really, really <coughs> woo her. And she's got rose-colored glasses on about life and he swoops in and get the kid. That's not unlike this Thing that's happening here like he's wooing her she's excited she will find out in a few minutes that they actually have a real affair so yeah i think the difference with this though is it's almost as if the mom threw on the rose-colored glasses like she she literally like her daughter went missing for over a month He's being charged with kidnapping, and yet she's about to dive into an eight-month affair with B. Yeah, but that's what I mean. I mean, it's like somebody is so intoxicating to somebody oh, yes. that it almost doesn't matter what they've done because they can find ways to justify and overlook it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, master man manipulators are really good at that, so... That, that's what I meant. Um, yeah, I get that. Yeah. For sure. <clears throat> yeah, so, um, moving on. Yeah, Mary Ann and B ended up having an affair for eight months. Uh, she said, so she, uh, Mary Ann said in the documentary, it was very exciting for her. Uh, she was enjoying it. She smiled in the documentary when she said that yeah, too. Yeah, Like, looking back on it. that That's the part that was, yikes a million for me. Because... <laughs> Yeah. After everything said and done, when she recalled that, she smiled. Yeah. So, in April 1975 to March 1976, Marianne, Jan's mom, uh, saw B 11 times. He also visited Jan on nine different occasions in the same time frame. And twice, so two of those times, uh, Jan and B spent the night together. Alone. Yeah. Um, so at this point, uh, Bob, Jan's dad, he knew about the affair and that uh, he was was sleeping with Marianne to get to Jan. So Bob filed for divorce. He wanted to try and nip this in the bud, you know, end it here. Um, while, while he filed for divorce, uh, B was still working on Marianne. He's trying to talk her into uh, leaving Bob, um, move in with, uh, with, with him and that. And yeah, he's still trying to separate the family yeah. in any way he can. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. And it was at that point, basically uh, Marianne and Bob uh, ended up coming together and Marianne said, no, she's not leaving her husband. And together, Marianne and Bob decided that they have to get rid of B, and they're not going to get divorced. So they realize basically that what the FBI has been telling them, yeah. he's a predator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, They exactly. realize that finally. That's too bad it takes... <clears throat> it's like... You know. It's like the only way they could 
realized that B was so bad is when it started affecting them personally more than anything. Yeah. Like, I don't want to say bad things about these parents because I honestly, truly believe they were just really nice, naive, good people. I actually believe that. Yeah, I agree. But I feel like it had to take something that was really close to them personally for them to see who this man was. Yeah. And the idea that he'd taken their kid just, it didn't flip the switch in their heads enough. Yeah. Which is insane, but I do not think they're bad people. Um, so in June of 1976, this would have been 20 months after the kidnapping, B agreed to a plea deal. He pled guilty to kidnapping. He got five years and it was reduced to 45 days, which is a travesty. Um, B moved away from Pocatello and bought a family fund center in Wyoming. I feel like that is just about the best thing a pedophile can buy. Yeah. Just throwing that out there. Jan wanted to work there for the summer. So Jan wanting there to work for the summer means Jan's still talking to B. Because how would she know he moved away and bought that? Bob and Marianne said no. Jan just rebelled. B called and said, Jan is going whether whether her parents liked it or not. Um, Marianne then decided that it was going to be too much of a fight with Jan all summer. If she said no, so she literally took Jan to the airport and sent her out there for two weeks herself, which is a yikes, a yikes, a yikes, but I'm not getting into that either because this is going to be a four-hour podcast. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> she ended up living with B in his motorhome for two weeks while she was out there. Uh, B then told Jan that he was absolutely getting a divorce from his wife, Gail, and soon they would be able to legitimately actually get married. Sometime soon. So that made Jan happy, but she was also super mad because she got sent back home. She just wanted to be with B. And B made it very clear to Marianne when Jan got back there that if Jan wasn't able to come back again, he would just kidnap her. Right. So, can we guess what happened next? Then Jan disappeared again for the second time. She ran away. She left a note. B claimed he... Sorry, uh, she left a note. Uh, B claimed he didn't know where she was either. Uh, they didn't want it to get out again. So when they say they didn't want it, it's the, the Brobergs. They, again, don't want this being known in the community. Um, this is the second time it's happened now. So instead of waiting five days to say anything to anybody, they waited two entire weeks. Ooh, they, they waited a whole paycheck worth of working days yeah. before they, like, uh. It's mind blowing that they did. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, so anyway, they they waited two weeks before they mentioned uh, to anyone that their daughter was missing again. Uh, B, this whole time, uh, he's claiming he's heartbroken. He has no idea where she is. Um, Just pulling the wool over the parents' eyes over it. Um, Jan was missing three weeks when B started his sentence on September 1st. Uh, B ended up getting out. 
in 10 days, instead of it even being the 45. A sentence that started off as five years, that got dumbed down to 45 days, that got put down to an absolute slap on the wrist uh, for 10 days, not even two weeks in jail. At this point, uh, B moved to Salt Lake City in his motorhome. He kept calling Marianne and crying. Uh, she called uh, Peter Walsh, yeah, uh, the FBI agent, and told him. Uh, at this point, the FBI tapped the Broberg's phone. Uh, he phoned Marianne and said he heard from her and she was selling drugs, prostituting and stealing. Uh, so now he's just making up blatant lies about their daughter. Yeah, so B is like, oh, she phoned me and she told me that she was prostituting, selling drugs, stealing. And he's trying to make it sound like Jan isn't with him. She's out doing something far, far worse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is so evil to lie about her, about your someone someone's child about. Too, yeah. Because she wasn't doing that. Yeah, exactly. And B kept the charade on for three months, calling Marianne and asking her if she had heard from Jan. Um, <clears throat> B also said to Marianne, uh, if you're laying a trap for me, I'll kill you. So so now he's he's up in his game now. Now he's, he's going into death threats. Yeah. I feel like he was also doing that to try to really reiterate the fact that he didn't know where she was yeah. so he's like if you know where she was where she is right now and you're not telling me i'll kill you where it was pretty obvious the the man that kidnapped her the first time probably had her this time too yeah right? exactly uh so then b uh he called uh marianne and he said that he had spoke to jan and jan really wanted to marry B, and that Jan is the only girl for him. Yeah. So, you know, basically, I feel like he was trying to set a bad scene in, in Marianne's head, which is like, oh, she's out prostituting, she's selling drugs, she's stealing, um, nobody knows where she is. If you just let me marry her, yeah. then... We'll know where she is. She'll be well taken care of. Like, I feel like it's all just disgusting manipulation. Yeah. Creepy pedophile from yeah. zero to hero. Yeah, exactly. So, in November of 1976, which is 90 days into Jan's second disappearance, so three months have gone by, FBI searched all of the trailer parks in Salt Lake City. And they found B. But they... They just put surveillance on it at first because they didn't really have anything. They couldn't pin him to anything. They never saw him with Jan. They didn't know what was going on. But one day they really didn't have anything. So then they decided to give him a visit. And they found that he had poster-sized pic pictures of Jan in his motorhome. And kind of a weird, creepy worship area for the young girl. So that is disgusting. Um... Yeah. Then on November 11th, 1976, which is 102 days in to the disappearance, the agents watched B walk across the road from his trailer park to a gas station. He made a call on a payphone 
and the FBI were able to get that number and trace it back to a Catholic girls' school. It turns out that B had put her there under the name Janice Tobler. Okay, so now this is how the second abduction happened. Um, this happened on August 10th, 1976. Uh, B went to the Broberg's house. He helped Jan out of her bedroom window. And from there, took her to California and enrolled her into an all-girls school. Uh, B would visit her on the weekends. Uh, he also told the nuns that uh, Jan and him, or sorry, that Jan was his daughter and he was a CIA agent. And that they had escaped from Lebanon and Jan's mother had been killed. He told the nuns there were people after them and basically to not give out any information. If somebody came looking for them, these were bad people. So yeah. don't don't give them any information about anything. Uh, B ended up getting arrested for a federal probation violation and was taken to jail. Yeah. So in Jan Jan <laughs> in January of 1977, when Jan had been home from the second kidnapping for 38 days, uh, her dad's store was randomly set on fire. And uh, basically, it was found out that B had convinced two guys that he went to jail with to burn the store down. It was very convenient that the people that ended up burning it was people that B knew. Yeah. Um. Apparently, he told these people he would give each of them a thousand dollars a month if they burned it down. Um, these guys were convicted, convicted and sent to prison. But I bet you can guess, based on every other conviction B had during this whole thing, what happened to him. They actually couldn't pin it on him. Are you shocked? I. Whew. Yeah, I know. <laughs> right. <laughs> Man. Okay. Okay. Well. B was then charged with first-degree kidnapping from the second disappearance. Uh, he was also charged with impersonating a CIA agent. He was ultimately acquitted by reason of mental defect. B was court-ordered into a mental facility for those charges, though. But he was released in less than six months, with which is insane in the membrane. Oh, yeah. I'm... Progressively building up a rant after this, for after this, because the amount, uh, the amount of time, uh, I'm just, uh, so, so he's in the, the, the mental health facility, um, so this is B speaking at this point, uh, he says, a psychiatrist told me what my problem was, he showed me why I had this fixation for Jan. I had been raised on an isolated ranch in Wyoming by a stepfather. I wasn't even part of the family. <clears throat> Excuse me. I slept in a bunkhouse. I was sexually abused by the help. When my mom got sick and left home, I took over the care of my younger sister. And as long as I was taking care of her, I was part of her family, or part of the family. This stuck with me, and later on in life, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was having problems, I needed to take care of a little girl. 
I just want to apologize for John. Um, he ate three boxes of crackers with no milk. This. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I got uh, a bit of a th frog in my throat here. Yes. <laughs> I'm just teasing. So this, I'm just going to really quickly say, um, so he says that uh, he took over the care for his younger sister uh, as long as he was taking care of her. He felt like he was part of the family that stuck with him. And later on in life, when he was having problems, he needed to take care of a little girl. He isn't taking care of a little girl. Yeah. He's... He is sexually exploiting little girls. Oh yeah. He's doing the worst thing you can yeah. do to a little girl. He's not taking care of him. So you would think if it was in his blood to try to take care of a little one, when he's having a rough time in life, he would try to take care of his own family. Like, yeah. he, he had five kids. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, okay. Don't get me started. <laughs> All right. It's, it's getting hot in here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in June of 1978, this is now 18 months since Jan's been home from the second disappearance or kidnapping. The mission still hasn't been completed, so... She is absolutely still wanting to complete it. Um, this is also the summer that Jan turned 16. And Jan was told that really bad things were going to happen to her family and to her if she wasn't pregnant by the time she was 16. So Jan is getting really tense and worried. And she knows, like, on the eve that she turns 16, she knows she's not pregnant. She knows she hasn't completed the mission. She is worried to wake up and be 16. The thing is, is that Jan wakes up being 16 and nothing happens and instantly realizes the truth. And it also helps that... She had some experiences that, like, rite of passage things with boys and yeah. real life stuff. Like, it's it's been a year, a year and a half since really any major contact with B happened. And she's starting to have some space in between and realize things on her own. And then turning 16 and realizing her family's not dead, her, her other sister didn't get taken, um... That it was all a lie. And Jan also mentions that at this point, B is kind of slowing down communication with her too. Because he seemed to lose interest as, as she got, got older. She's 16 now. When they started, she was 12. So I feel like he's more interested in a younger child. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, oh yeah, Jan also says um, at this part of the documentary that... At this point, by the time she hits 16, there has been more than 200 sexual encounters between B and Jan. And I had to just swallow a bunch of puke when I said yeah. that. It's absolutely sickening. So, Jan and her mom, Marianne, uh, they wrote a book. A book. <laughs> a book. It's been a long day. Oh, no boy, has it. <laughs> uh, they wrote a book about uh, Jan's experience. It was called Stolen Innocence. Um, this book was released in 2003. It, it didn't include, I would say, some of the information that the documentary did. It definitely didn't have uh, the tryst between B and Jan's parents. Um, 
in yeah, it, it was, at all. It was missing some info. Yeah. But I think maybe the book was just mostly to do with just Jan's experience and yeah. and really nothing else. Um Birch told so sorry, uh B uh claimed the book was a lie. Uh that Jan went with him willingly. Uh there was no e- alien trickery. He said to Jan, if she doesn't shut this book down, I'm going to make your life as miserable as possible. Uh, So Jan took that to court and filed a stalking injunction against uh, B. He contested it, um, but she ended up getting the stalking injunction against B for the remainder of his life. So that's good. Um, Because he he was threatening her, though? Um, she'd actually acquired the protection of Bikers Against Child Abuse, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I think that's really neat. Um, and and they would protect her while she was out at public events, uh, promoting the book, uh, just just talking and stuff. Uh, they would be there... For the court dates and yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, B ended up showing up to one of these, and... Uh, I can't remember exactly, but I think he was just kind of, he was shooed off by these BACA members, so the, the Bikers Against Child Abuse, and B ended up either running one over or running into one, yeah, and then just driving off. Um, he ended up getting arrested and charged with three felonies and two misdemeanors. Yeah, based on that one. Yeah. Um, he was found guilty... Of possession of a firearm. Yeah, by a restricted person. um, By proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So, he was also found guilty of aggravated assault. (laughs) It has been (laughs) a long day. it really has. Also found guilty of aggravated assault, which is actually very, very serious in the United States. And um, so, at the very end, this was years later. This was like 2003. So... Everything that happened was in the past now. Um, it wasn't until these things happened with the Bikers Against Child Abuse that he even was looking at some major jail time. Yeah. And um, he got convicted of these things, but he had to wait a week to um, go back to hear his actual sentencing. And it was crazy what happened in that week, right? Yeah. So in that week, he... Uh... <clears throat> Excuse me. He decided that uh, he didn't want to face any of this time. Uh, For the first time, I'm going to say in his life, he ends up with some real charges. He's looking at facing some real time. Yeah. And he takes the coward's way out and downs all his heart medication, uh, slams some alcohol, and does himself in. He absolutely committed suicide. He didn't have to own up to anything. No, and that's exactly what you would expect from a greasy pedophile. Yeah. And it hurts my heart that he couldn't be responsible. Yeah. And it makes me sad for his own family, lots, Yep. that he would do that. Um, <clears throat> so it ends up, at the very end, you find out that six different women came forward at some point... Um, after all this happened, and they actually said that he'd sexually assaulted and abused them too, and they were little girls. 
there was also um, a case that had come up where I believe because it was very cloudy all the some of this info was cloudy on this documentary yeah. and I tried looking it up and I couldn't even find the date he'd been charged but he had actually done a year of jail time previously um for child rape he'd spent a year in jail yeah and so after spending <clears throat> a year in jail for child rape he still continued to do all this with Jan he also abused at least six other little girls and from what I've read about pedophiles is it's kind of like spotting a mouse you what for everyone you see there's ten that you don't see so we know about six or seven girls that he um, assaulted uh, I guarantee you there was way more than oh that. yeah I, I wouldn't doubt it for a second when the community is that well aware yeah. That he has a disturbing interest in young girls. Yeah, and you also have to remember that community had only known him for a year or two at the time, too. Yeah. It's not like he'd lived there for a really long time, and um, for 30 years there were these myths about him. Yeah. In that little length of time, uh, a community knew that's what he was doing. Yeah, exactly. And how <laughs> many other parents in that community were too embarrassed for that to get out to the community yep. that maybe one of their kids was, you know, uh, assaulted or whatever by B and they just stayed tight lipped about it and just maybe cut ties with them. But you know, that, that kid may just have absolutely gone through, uh, at least in the early stages, a fairly similar situation. Oh yeah, for sure. So exactly like you said, there's there is probably a bunch more that yeah. were affected by B. Yeah, those people. I feel like <clears throat> they they stick with what works. So they, yeah. it would have been similar things that he did in other people too. Um, so I just want to point out that now the the documentary is done. Like we went through everything that happened. Um, again, we went over the hour. Yeah. Uh, we're going to try to keep it, keep it tight here. Um, we're going to discuss a couple things really fast that we wanted to point out at the yeah. end. Uh, so what did you have in mind to talk about now? So for me, one of the absolute biggest, biggest frustrations, biggest things that anger me about this whole thing. And when it comes to light at the end of the documentary that he actually even had a charge on him, uh, being found guilty of rape of a child and spending a year in jail for that, that, um, he, he, he did the, he did the court and the trial. He was being brought up on kidnapping charges. He was found guilty and for them to say that that's a five-year jail sentence, like that's what he's going to face, yeah. I think is ridiculously low, especially concerning a young child and the fact that on his record, it, it should say somewhere on there that he's been convicted and guilty of rape of a child. Yeah, so exactly. So five years is not nearly enough. And I understand that the justice system is flawed, and I actually don't know too much about it. It's really easy to sit um, at home behind my phone or behind a TV screen and just say, oh, yeah, the system's flawed. I actually don't know much about it, but it really does appear to be flawed. And hearing things like this are just 
the types of things that fuel that thought. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But on top of that, to have a five-year sentence dumbed down to 45 days. And they didn't explain why. No. Yeah. And then from there, even down to 10 days. I know people that have went to jail for like traffic violations like with fines they couldn't pay so they get sent to jail for longer than 10 days yeah oh yeah exactly <clears throat> so <clears throat> so in this whole documentary he spends 10 days in jail and six months in a mental ward yeah or for... uh, a mental facility yeah, right? for all the things he did. Yeah. So, it's, it's, I don't know how he got out of those. I don't know. It, it doesn't actually elaborate on it, which is, which is too bad. Um, because having some understanding to that might make it less frustrating. It yeah. might make it more frustrating. I actually don't know. Yeah. But, but in terms of his life and what he's been charged with, he, he does one year six months and 10 days in total where he's, if not confined to a jail cell, he's in a mental place. The one time, the only thing that he gets some real, he's looking at some real time, some real trouble. Yeah. Not, not the, the sexual exploitation of a youth. No, none of that sticks. He ran over or ran into uh, one of these bikers and got himself three felonies, two misdemeanors. And now he's looking at real time. Yeah, exactly. And he's, he's found guilty and he has to come back to jail or to the court, sorry, to receive his sentencing. Why? Why are we, why, why did uh, criminals get to go home? I know. I know. That's the worst thing. He gets like, to, gets to go home and. Yeah. They should have held him until sentencing because it was serious enough. But for some reason, the judge was like, oh no, he'll come back. Okay. Yeah. yeah and I see, <clears throat> I see this a lot in real life and maybe with, with those, like I'm not actually trying to bring in a different story. I'm just saying that I. I, I see this a lot in real life and I see a lot of people uh, talking about it and just how, like, why, why do we do this? Why, why do we trust somebody that's uh, a criminal, that's somebody that's uh, not a good con contributing member of society? We're just going to let them be, like, have our trust that they're going to come back in. Yeah, we'll just trust them. But they're good for it. Yeah. Yeah. That was really and I just, upsetting. I say that because he doesn't deserve to die. He deserves to rot in jail. Yeah. He deserves to lose all his freedom. He doesn't deserve to go out on his own he, the way he wants. He doesn't deserve that. Yeah. You're right. So that that is probably by far one of the biggest uh, things that annoy me about this story and I mean there is a lot and we absolutely don't have time to go through them all but I know one that really really tweaked us uh, being parents is 
a lot of the parents' choices, which we really tried hard not to judge. Yeah, like how they just kept up communication with him. And, I mean, the mom slept with this man several times. Uh, lots of the times she slept with him were after he kidnapped her daughter for the first time. He... He married her daughter in Mexico and she still had an affair with him. Like, yeah, I was blown away by that. But I'm not going to become angry, rage Tory 9000 right now. I'm really <laughs> not. I don't like that person. Um, I don't like how it feels. So it just I am just hurting for the victims in the story. Yeah. And, and I think that's a lot of where. Yeah. I think our frustration comes from is it's it's really sad for for Jan and for what she had to go through. And a lot of this could have just been easily stopped. Like it could have yeah. ended so much sooner. It never had to get this far. Yeah. I think sometimes parents have to, um, put the protection of their children above anything. So. Absolutely. You, you put it above looking like an asshole yep. to your friend. If you think your friend is, the wrong kind of person to be around your kids. You say something, um, protecting your kid at all costs. Even if you're getting blackmailed about something you're not proud of, you do the right thing and protect your kid. So, yeah, yeah know, that's kind of a, a first and foremost thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. At least for me. And I know for you, but Oh yeah. I don't know. I know the parents are victims too. And I don't, I don't want to keep, yeah, they they absolutely are. And the the thing is we we didn't grow up in the 70s. No. We grew up in the 80s and we were very young in the 80s. So we don't know what the lifestyle was like in the 70s. We don't, you know, we don't it's it's just it's very easy to get frustrated. It's very easy to have judgment and sit on your couch and watch this documentary and get Be really upset, get really yeah. frustrated, but you never, you never lived it. You don't know what was going through this family's head. You don't know the situations that were arising, you know. This happened <clears throat> over four years, basically. So he yeah. was doing this in really small increments over the course of years too, right? Like planting it. Yeah. And also, like, I really hope that this was a learning case for the FBI and for the local police department or whatever. Like, yep. so many mistakes were made in all those areas because I feel like maybe the FBI <laughs> had access to B's criminal record and they could have been like, oh, this man has been brought in before for things. But I don't know. I just feel like... If anything, I truly hope this was a learning experience for the people that were running the um, the case. Yeah. And um, darn it, I was going to bring something else up. I don't know what it is now. <laughs> it, it probably doesn't matter. Trust me, guys. <clears throat> it's things everybody was thinking anyway. Yeah. So... Oh, did you have another one? No, no. Okay. I, I literally could pick like yeah, we'll five or six more forever. things, but uh, I think our listeners should actually really watch this documentary themselves and sit there 
and stew in the frustration and questions that that are going to arise for them. Yeah. And then they'll they'll also understand why we were we were so frustrated. And I feel like especially any of the parents out there. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And 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 I mean not even parents, uh, brothers and sisters, like you know you 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 got a younger family member, somebody that you take care of, somebody you really care about. Just imagine how you'd feel. Yeah. You know. For sure. Uh, yeah, we got to shut it down, guys. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so guys, this was quite the roller coaster of info and craziness. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and file this under B for bullshit. Just, <laughs> just kidding. It's B for bizarre. It's B for bizarre. Yeah. Uh, this, this was a very bizarre story. Um, it was a fairly hard to follow one watching the documentary, just the way it, uh, it bounced around with all the years and the dates. Uh, so I hope um, Tori put some real effort into uh, putting this in chronological order. I hope it was easy uh, for you guys to follow. <clears throat> Excuse me. It absolutely, uh, it had a lot of detail, but it really sprung a lot of discussion. Me and Tori uh, watched this documentary twice, and the second time it took us hours to get through it because we kept pausing it and discussing things and and this and that so and not unlike the first recording we just went on and on um we'd like to thank you guys for joining us for this story uh we hope you found it as interesting as we did and again definitely definitely check out the documentary on netflix it was really good and uh i hope you guys will join us uh next monday for another Podcast and chill. And as always, you can email us at darkvalepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought. 